welcome to episode 274 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Once again, coming from the Batcave, Batcave episode number two. How are you doing, Jason? <laughs> Good, you sound out of breath. Well. Climbing up those stairs and... Sorry about that. Out. No, I, I took, <laughs> took the elevator. <laughs> You're still out of breath, huh? So, uh... Well, I want to talk about your rebound project right. for starters. So high frequency trading, high frequency crypto trading, right? With PHP, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be fun. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about this offline, or rather, not. not in our conversations weren't recorded, and uh, but we're going to cover some of that same stuff here. I think, right? Sure. So, um. Where are you at? What are you doing? What have you tried to do? I probably I probably have the madness about it a little bit. That's um, great. Well, the only thing, the only way stuff really gets done is when you have the madness. Right. That's why you know they say you know you you want to go you want to go after something when you you know you, you have a tiger by the tail. It's like you got that's when you can make a lot of progress really quickly. And then when you've made that progress and you actually have something that kind of works, then even after you lose the madness, you're like, oh, I have something that's kind of worked. Either it's making money, or people are using it, or or whatever. And, or have released it and it's and it's live then then you're uh then you then you even without the madness you have these external motivators that keep you going yeah yeah well i mean thanks for you know for uh well no actually i brought it up to you i i, I was thinking about it anyway because of the the cash that i made through just normal trading and then i, I just thought, encourage you that's all. yeah yeah so um I mean, really what I wanted to talk to you about, I just have a bunch of questions about it, you know, and I hope that's not too boring for the listeners, but I'm thinking some people would be interested in some of the answers that well, you look, have. look, I mean, here's the deal. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's always people who you're never going to have hundred percent agreement on anything as you know, but you know, if you were doing a mobile project, I'm sure there's a ton of people who don't care about mobile mm-hmm. or if you did a web project and a lot of people don't give a damn about that, you know, there's yeah. going to be some percentage of people who just... You know, but I think it's less about what the ex- exact project is as opposed to the process of doing it. The technical process, the creative process, the, pr- the pr- procedures or what you do and how you learn and how you go from A to Z. I mean, that's what this is all about. I mean, I think we have our, our, our audience is smart enough and they can think abstractly and apply lessons from like, you know, one type of project to another. All right. Well, so, so far I have just made a small little program that kind of passes through a day's worth of Bitcoin, uh, I guess, price data. Price data. The trades. So yeah, yeah, yeah trades. Now I've realized that that, uh, you know, we're, we're actually looking into doing the real trade. Like, so, okay, go back. So I read a program, it goes through a day's worth of data. It makes some profit, you know, not like something incredible, but it makes some profit. So, so it goes through, it reads through a, and a, a basically like a, an array of trades. Basically, yeah. That have a timestamp on a price and a volume, like how much was traded. It doesn't care about that. Like it's not, I'm not that level. No, I'm but, not but there that's yet. what the information is. Yeah, I'm not at that level yet. Okay. And so your system doesn't yet make post or get requests to a crypto exchange you're just reading through this this array it's just a re- it's just a simple script it's just re- it's just doing some algorithms it's like looking for curves or whatever and kind of trying to make it trying to make a determination about when's a good time to buy and when's a good time to sell but the thing the thing is is that what i wanted to ask you about is that's just a single number so every line is just one number that that's the current price so you know last second it was that price this second is this price next second it's new price but that seems 
different to when you actually look at the real scenario because the real scenario there is no single price there's just an order book and this is what i want you to like to explain to me like there's an order book of people willing to sell something people willing to buy something so what's and and in, in each of those is an array of like i don't know 100 prices or whatever mm-hmm. like so what's the how do you know what the price is like what yeah okay there's there are two prices there's a there's a price that someone is willing there's like two, there's 200 prices. No, no, no. Well, okay. Well, it depends. So it's like, let's say, okay. So if we have this order book of, of, of buy of bids. Yeah. Prices at which someone's willing to buy something. Yeah. And, and this, by the way, this applies to any commodity future and exchange cryptocurrency stock. It's all done the same way, right? It's just nothing you could, you know, it could be cars, you know, and you could say so an order book is a moment in time, basically when a moment in time, and a list of all the people who are willing to buy or willing to sell at various different prices. And w- along with the volume. Like, you might say, oh, along with the- I'm willing yeah. to buy, let's say, let's use stock, it's easier to talk about stock. I'm willing to buy um, a thousand shares of Google at, I don't know, I don't know what the current price is, say $500. Um, and someone else says, I'm willing to buy 200 shares at $499.95 or something. And then there's different, people have different amounts, right? So there could be- there why, could, why would anyone ever go for the 499 versus the 500? Well, here's the thing. Let's say that you had, you owned 50,000 shares of Google. Yeah. And you're like, and you, and you just were getting this sense there's going to be a down move. I think Google's going to lose a bunch of money because they're, there's a lot of pressure in the EU about stuff in Asia. And you want to sell as much of your 50,000 shares as possible. Well, there's- there's this one dude who wants willing to buy a thousand shares at five hundred. You know, or there's there's a bunch of people who are willing to buy shares at five hundred, but maybe there's only twenty thousand shares you could total sell at that price. And then, okay, so you sold, but you want to sell fifty thousand of your shares yeah. right now. Okay, so you sold twenty thousand at that price. Now the next level down, there's another ten thousand people to buy that buy who are willing to buy it at five cents cheaper, right? And then you're like, oh, so now I still have 20,000 shares left to, to sell, right? And then you work your way on down through the order book because you can't keep selling it all at one price. So basically, is, is the order book – so going, going to your example, person puts 50,000 out there. They start off at the price of 500. Then they offer it to for 499. Then offer it for 498. They bid. They, they, they were bid, they, bidding it. They, or, okay. Right. So each time they do that and it gets snapped up, it's the same person, and they're, you'll, you'll see in the order book from second to second, 50,000 shares, 49,000 shares, 45,000 shares. But you won't know it's that person, but that's what's happening. Yeah, in there'll the order be a book. trade, because then, then trades will occur. So a trade occurred between two people. You, who are selling your shares at Google, and, the per, and, and all the people who you sold to at that price. So you might, you might put in, you, if you put in a sort of, uh, 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 an order to sell all 50,000 shares of Google, okay? Right? You understand? Okay, you're, you're looking at me with a blank look. Yeah, yeah, go on. Talking about. Okay, you sell all 50,000 shares. 20,000 of it gets sold at, 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 at $500, at the $500 price level. It might have been 10 different people who had orders in that made up that all that volume at that price level. Right. And then it drops down until, and it fills as much as it can. So it'll fill as much of the order as it can until it's all filled. And so in every single time you traded with someone, that would generate a trade. So you would see trade. That's when trade. You see, here's a trades that occurred, like prices. This a trade occurred at this price. A trade occurred at this price. A trade occurred at this price. But when I'm looking at the live stream data come in, like 
what am I looking at to say this is the price that my algorithm should pay attention to? Well, that's an interesting thing. I mean, so there's two things, depending on what kind of data. There's, there's what they call trade data, which is what we just talked about, which is that trades that's occurred. Trades occurred. Occurred. Right. Okay? Yeah. That doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, that's just what it is. That's all it is. And then there are, there's the order books. So there's people sending in orders to, uh, and those get put in the order book. So if, if you put in an order to buy or sell, and let's say you put in an order to buy, but it's, it's not, it's less than the current best offer. Well, it's not going to cross with the, it's not going to create a trade because there's nobody willing to uh, sell at your price. That's less than the, than the, than the lowest offer. You understand? Right. So, you, so do you always have to put it at the so, lowest? So that, that's what's called a limit order. You say, I am willing to buy, if you say, I am willing to buy it um, $500.01, but the, the lowest offer is $500.05, that, then you just get stuck at the, in the order book. Now, you're currently the highest buy price, so anyone who wants to come down and, and either um, hit a limit order to sell at $500.01 would cross with you first and create a trade. Okay. So there's what they're called market orders and limit orders. A market order, if you said, if you put in a market order for your 50000 that would cross until the entire thing was filled with all of the buy orders, starting with the most expensive. Oh, that's how it works. So so market order, you, I see. So it always hits the, the order book from the cheap from the cheapest down. Like it, market, yeah, whatever. Yeah, if, you buy, if you're buying. That's and if you're selling, it's from the highest down. Now, if you put in a limit order, you could put a limit order where it's, if it's if your a limit buy order is less than or equal to, or say it's it's less than the the highest or the lowest offer, then it's gonna get stuck in the book. Likewise, if you put a sell order and it's greater than the highest bid, it's gonna get stuck in the book. But if you put a limit order in, let's say a limit or buy order in, and it was greater than or equal to the offer, it would execute at that price as much as it could. But right. if you had more, if you had more than could get filled. The remaining would get stuck in the order book, and and then and anyone else who saw the order book, well, they would see the order book got raised up in price, right? Because it didn't get filled completely. And that's how the and that's out, how the price the price fluctuates. Yeah, it just it just took out some of the lowest offers, but it didn't take out all of them. So you know now you have the order book got moved up. So that's supply and demand. That's supply and demand. It's just who's willing to buy, what price who's willing to buy, sell, at what price, and then they cross when they cross, and when they cross, they generate a trade. Right, but still, like when I when I run my current program through a day's worth of trade data i have one number to look at to say this is the number that my algo is buying or selling at how does that translate to an order book and live trading yeah so really what you want to do is you either want to construct a um an order book the simple this sort of the the very simple version which is not going to be as accurate is you track all the the order book and just take out the inside buy and sell price and if you if your algorithm puts in a buy or sell, you assume that you're going to cross at if you're buying, you're going to cross at the offer price, and if you're going to sell, you're going to cross at the lowest at the highest. When you price. say cross, you mean it's going to get filled at that price. Okay, so the the lowest and highest of, of each of them, and that's the price you push it in at. Well, okay. if you're going to buy, you're going to buy at the offer. You're going to sell. You're going to sell at the bid. I see. You don't get to trade because you sell at the offer. There's, there's currently nobody's willing. But if to you buy say it. market, then it's going to get that first, and maybe a couple of. Yeah, Probably because it could sense. be like, you know, there's only one, you know, a hundred shares of Google offered at that price, right? And you're trying to do a thousand shares. It's like, well, you're not only going to get a hundred of your order filled at that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, so w- the the way you really want to do this to be accurate 
okay, the first step is just have the the um, track the um, the 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 inside market, the lowest, the highest bid, the lowest offer, and then you figure out. Okay, I'm going to buy and sell. I'm going to assume that there's no latency and that whatever that bidder offer is, I can hit it and get filled. It isn't always true, but let's just for simple. How often is it to, true? It really depends on the market. It depends on how much how, how much volume there is. It depends how move, how fast moving it is. It depends how close your server in is. Bits, in Bitstamp, there's the volume is about three and a half thousand Bitcoin a day, and that's it. That's and that's the busiest one. Um, it really, I, I don't know. I mean, I see what you need to do is. Um, you need to see how much volume is in the order book at any given time and see how often that changes. And what, you know, so what, what you might do is, is, uh, is do that first, reconstruct the order book or just the inside market. The next step would then be to reconstruct the book at, at any given time. So you, you, you subscribe to the order book. Okay. And so I don't think you can download a history of the order book. Yeah, I think really what you want to do is you need to set up an a, a, an EC2 instance, right? Ten dollars a month or whatever, and it subscribes to it and just stores all of these book updates. And it, you know, you, you can just for simplicity just throw it into a text file, a log file. Maybe you can put it in a database if you want. But you still c- don't truly know if um, you were able to make the order or not. Like, it's, so it's still not really. Te- if you run if you run your program against that data. You don't know truly whether your order was filled or not because, maybe, like you say, it may have been on there when you looked at it, but then you tried to make the trade and it was gone. Well, what you could see is you could – so let's say that you stored all this data. You set up the CC2 instance. You store all the book data. So then you go back. And let's say you, let's say you set it up today. And that's one thing I was going to recommend to you. I think the first thing you should do, the next thing you should do is spin up an instance and then just have it subscribe or WebSockets or whatever to this data and it just starts storing it into a text file. Don't Don't – some complicated schema you can always go back and do it redo the schema if you want some way of compressing the data doing binary stick into a database whatever you want to do but just log it to a file so that anything write another program then say okay i'm going to replay yesterday and so at any given time every any given millisecond i could say this is exactly what the order book was for the buy the buy side and the sell side okay then what you could do is if you run an algorithm against it to buy or sell into that simulated order book you can have your your simulated order book can look ahead and go okay was this order still here assuming that the algorithm sent this trade in but, we're, and we're going to put a 10 set a 10 millisecond delay or 50 millisecond delay was that bidder offer price still there do um okay i get it do you are they tracked by ids or are you just it's just the price it's basically just the price so you're just looking to see is that price still available there's no kind of id of an order it's not like that yeah well normally it depends on what they give you i haven't i haven't looked at the order book of which one you're talking about i mean there's you know there's a couple different exchanges cripsy there's mint pal there's ebtc there's or btce there's when you show me atlas there's a variety of these i guess it doesn't matter i mean whether there's an id or not as long as you're going in for the as long as the price is there in 10 milliseconds time, that's yeah. good. For, for, yeah, for, for your perspective, it really doesn't matter. You just need to, you just want to faithfully be able to have your simulated order book have an accurate representative, representative, representation of what that order book is at any given millisecond. And that way you can say, when your algorithm sends an order, it can go, okay, realistically, I'm going to put, I'll run a millisecond uh, delay, yeah. and then I'm going to look into the book. 
I'm going to look into the future and say, was this probably here? It was, okay, you get filled or you don't, or you get a partial fill or your stuff or your order gets stuck in the book. So it's, it, it's millisecond ticks. Is that how it works? It depends on the, um, it depends on how they, um, do it. I mean, what you would want to do is when you store this data, you'd want to store it as accurately as you can store it on your machine on your, uh, and you probably want to run some kind of at least once a day run some kind of clock update to keep the, the computer's clock from slipping because it slips a little every day. Right. Um, it, it would, yeah, it would automatically. So with NTP. Right. So, 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 so you want to keep, yeah, keep the clock up to date and you want as, and you, there's, there's a timestamp that they have and there's a timestamp when you receive it. Just for, okay. just for everyone's, uh, Edification, I guess. Um, NTP is you can just just do app get NTP on Ubuntu, and it will automatically keep you aligned. Right. Well, that's that's good. I mean, I used to I used to my servers back Windows servers back in the day. We'd have to write this atomic clock. Oh, okay, Service, right. and it would kind of update it because if you get your comment, if your clock gets off by a second or two, it really can screw things up for you. Okay. And, and um, so it, 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 the code to manage the order book, assuming the order book, it's not really that hard. But it's like one of the most important things you do. You can do because if you're writing an algorithm, you can very easily fool yourself into thinking it's profitable when actually it's making trades that would never actually be able to make. Yeah. And so you need to. You want to factor. You want to have an accurate order book representation. You want to factor in your realistic commission costs and and, and latency times because you'll be able to track the latency when you. So if 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 if, if you set up something once you start trading, you can you can look at the latency. Or once you start capturing the data. You can see, well, there's, oh, okay, but when, you're tra- when you start trading data, that's another thing to, like, early on, you know, create, like, a, a, like a random bot. It's even a simple bot that just puts some random trades, and you go, okay, latency is 19 mils. Or, there, the other there, thing there's is... A mean, there's a mean, and there's a standard deviation of your... The other thing is, when you make a trade, does your, like, does the, does the software just sit there and wait for the response of whether that was successful or not? Mm-hmm. So is this how you would do your bot if you were building one? You'd basically do some kind of loop... And you'd make a trade, and you'd wait for the answer, or would you no, have it? No, negative, absolutely not. It's asynchronous. You send in an order, and then at some point in the future, you'll get a notification back, like you got filled, or you got a partial fill, or your order got rejected, or you're, or, or you're, you know, whatever. So you send, you send like a post. What happens if you want order. it to be like non-synchronous, synchronous? Uh, of you, to, you want to be synchronous, not async. Yeah, you want it to be so. You want to know the result of that trade. You don't want to do it that way. It's going to be way too slow. You're going to be behind on everything because a lot of times they don't tell you because they don't know right away. Your stuff gets has to get processed. It's in a queue now. The queue may be very very fast, but usually what it'll do is it'll give you a temporary ID. Here is your your order message ID. Check back in. Oh, and then like uh, and then you have this other socket connection or whatever that's constantly getting. Um, uh, messages asynchronously is getting messages and be like, oh, your order they put in, you know, order two seven five three eight nine, it's live. Oh, now now half of it got filled. Boop, rest filled, you know, and it's big bang, bang bang. Well, that's like the first kind of that's a pretty big challenge because without knowing the result of what you did, it's kind of hard to make a decision on what to do next. Well, your 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 state is sent order. I sent order on this this my, my current. My current, you have what I used to have. I would track um, for a given uh, thing that I was trading because I'd be trading a lot of something, not just like one thing. You're just trading Bitcoin. I'd be trading like 500 stocks or maybe yeah. like 200 stocks at one time, and it would be like for Microsoft, I am long 500 shares or short 500 shares. I could say I am long 500 shares 
I want to be long 800 shares. So it would tell me what I'm trying to do in the current state. And the current state is sent order, waiting for order acknowledgement, you know, whatever. It shows me the state because you're in a state of yeah. waiting. It's not synchronous. Huh. And so t- t- tell us a little bit more about So you've written these bots, these algorithmic trading bots before. Okay, tell us a little bit about it. I mean, I just built, I built all the whole damn infrastructure that was on tons of computers. So this is, that's funny when people, like when I go up to Uber and they talk about doing stuff, I'm like, yeah, I did that back in 2000. Right. <laughs> you know, like, oh, we're going to distribute this and we're going to do this. I'm like, yeah, I did all that. You know, I mean, I did it my own way and my, you know, and I wrote a different computer la- and a programming language and I did it on different environment, but you know, all that kind of stuff. It's like, it, in the end, you end up, everyone's up recreating it some way but yeah so, so what do you want to ask me about it well what i want to ask you if you don't mind sharing like what are some of the ideas like you, you talk about ideas whenever you talk about algorithmic trading you say oh you'll have one idea then you'll have another idea then you'll have another idea what's an example of an idea mm, okay so here's some things that i used to play around something here's some things that i had always wanted to play around with but i didn't get as much of a chance to um one of it was so You'll see that, like, if you look at a chart, you'll see, like, um, you know, let's say talk about Bitcoin. And let's say you look at it and you go, you know what? Every time it gets close to 500, it drops. It just can't seem to get through 500. Huh. Right? Yeah. You look at that and you go, and you're like, well, um, and you might say, okay, that's what they call, like, a resistance level. Like, for some yeah. reason, it, yeah. it could be coincidence, but it could also be that there are a lot of people who sort of think that that's too expensive. And so nobody's going to buy it when it gets over 500. And everybody else is kind of saying, kind of becomes self-reinforcing, you know? Yeah. And everybody becomes kind of scared of that level. Okay. <laughs> and so people start getting up to it. Like, you might see that in Tesla. Like, oh, whenever it gets up to like 285, 290, people are like, ah, I'm going to sell now. Like, I yeah. think it's going to bust through 300, right? Unless it does go through 300 and there's and it goes through with a lot of volume, like a lot of people are buying. You're like, okay, I guess we're through it. I guess we're, we, we're, we're, we're past that. You know, right. we've, we've gone through a mental growth stage. We all agree <laughs> that it's worth, you know. Um, so I always thought, I always think, I think these sort of price levels, especially when they're, they correspond to sort of almost hard dollar levels, like round numbers, like $300 or whatever. Usually they're closely aligned to some, some there's, there's some sort of number that's just above or just below the actual max value that I got. And you're like, I can see everybody's looking at that and they're just like, I can't, I can't, it's not going to go through. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so what you want to do, especially if it starts going up there and it's also like the volume starts decreasing, I'm selling that. Like there's just not enough conviction that's going to go through. Like you huh. see the volume gets lower and lower and lower. It's getting up, it's getting up, it's getting close. You're like, no That's what you sell. Screw it. Like you might say, so you look at low volume, you look for low volume hitting almost at a approaching certain... Approaching a resistance level. And then you go sell, sell, oh, okay. sell. Okay, so you go that and you go... And like what I also thought, and, let, and the same works for, for, for support levels at the bottom. Like every time you see Tesla get down to a certain level, or every time you see Bitcoin get down to a level, you're like, and the volume starts to spin off, you're like, okay, people are getting scared of selling short because they're like, they're thinking, oh, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to look at that and go, oh man, that's cheap, I'm buying. It's buying time. Right, I've been sitting it out, but like, like Uber. I mean, I'm sorry, I mean, Tesla's now getting towards two hundred dollars. Yeah, it's buying. It's time. buying time. It's buying time. Right, people start coming out of the woodwork and start buying. So that's when you want to buy. So basically, buy low, sell high. Right, but people kind of look. These support and resistance levels are very psychological. The market is just psychology, really. You know? well, except for the high frequency trading part, which I've been doing a lot of reading about, and it's got 
a pretty bad name for itself in certain circles. Well, here, let me say, let me, but we'll get, get to that. Yeah. Before we get to that. So it's very psychological. And, um, and so you want to, but the other thing is I always thought is like, if you played around with resistance levels, uh, like an individual stock, but then you said, you know what, when the, because people use, don't trade these stocks in a vacuum, right? There's what's going on in the overall market. So if they're looking at like the Dow Jones or the S&P 500 is reaching a maximum level and it coincides with a maximum level of um, Tesla, I keep confusing Uber and Tesla, it keeps confusing with, te- I mean, it keeps, um, it coincides with Tesla. So Tesla's getting up towards its, ma- to its resistance. Yeah. The overall market seems to get to resistance point. You're like, that really makes me think people are going to start selling soon, right? People are not, especially if the volume starts falling off. So if you can find like, Stocks that are in a related group. So if you're trading Google and Apple and Amazon, I don't know, a bunch of stocks that people seem to trade together because they're in the same market and they're all getting sort of close. It like really makes you think like- Is that, now is that high frequency trading or is that just like intraday trading that you're talking about? All this stuff is very, um, it's just semantic. Some people, some people call high frequency algorithmic automated. I mean, a lot of times they're talking about high frequency trading. It's really just market making. It's just automated market making, which is means most of the high frequency trading are again a good portion of the volume is they're constantly putting in limit orders to buy and sell above and below a certain level, betting on the fact that whatever the price is, it will go away from, but it'll revert back to some kind of a mean level. They're kind of trying to manipulate the market. No. No market making? See, see, that's the thing. It's like What's the difference between market making and manipulating the market? <laughs> manipulating the market is illegal. Yeah, but and that's doing stuff to. It's, ba- it's basically the same thing. You're trying to get the market to go in a no, certain direction. No, you can't. No, very, very few institutions have enough money to move an entire market, unless it's like some penny stock or something like that. Okay. Like you can't. It'd be very difficult to really manipulate, say, you know, some major. I don't know, some major stock. I don't right. Know. But, uh, but a lot of stock manipulation is to do with like putting out false news stories and rumor trading off of rumors and doing all kind of things that move stuff around or sometimes it can be you know i mean like there were a bunch of banks that were conspiring they can that conspired to um manipulate the LIBOR rate which is the interbank london interbank there's one i mean rate. from reading up on it there's one high frequency trading firm that has that's being taken to court or was taken to court about trying to manipulate the market first of all just something that's taken to court doesn't mean it's true oh i know i okay. get it yeah so and I, I don't think that they've i don't think it's it's resolved or it's true mm-hmm. but uh the, th- the thesis was that they kind of flooded they flooded the market like just a minute before close kind of thing to kind of get it to do what they want. But um, yeah. Okay. So, so just describe market making to me. That's what I'm doing. I'm yeah, yeah. So, so if you're putting in buy and sell orders, like you're not trying to t- hit the other side. You're, you're like, let, let's say that you right now, you want to buy Bitcoin because you think it's going to go up. So you buy at the lowest offer price. You put in a market order. Okay, just yeah. gets filled with the lowest offer price, which means you want to buy it, right? Right, you're wanting that's not market making. That's just buying it. That's just being yeah. That's that's removing liquidity. Okay, you are removing liquidity. liquidity. Now, okay. if you and likewise, you're like, hey, you know what? You know, we just talked about resistance levels. You might say, you know what? I think there is a resistance level and a support level at the current bid and offer. Always, there's always the market. The 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 price is always kind of reverting towards like sort of a center price between those. Between those, right? Yeah. So what what you'll do is you'll put multiple sell orders in the book and multiple buy orders in the book. Uh, 
be outside the bounds. Outside the bounds. May, you might be right at the equal to the inside the market. You might be the lowest offer, the highest bid. You might be below it, whatever. You might have a bunch of buy and sell orders in the book. Okay? Yeah. One or more. And then as the market goes up, fluctuates up and down, you are providing liquidity. So if I then come in and say, oh, I want to buy or sell Bitcoin, you have a bunch of orders you're willing to buy and sell with me at any of those prices. And if I keep doing it all day with you, if I keep buying and selling, or people like me keep coming and buying and selling, you're like a bookmaker in the sense that you're always there to provide the liquidity for anybody who wants to get in or out of the market. Oh, markets, I see. You so are making a market. I will So buy, making liquidity. Just like it's very, the best example is like a bookmaker is making odds. I will give you odds. And their odds is the spread between the bid and the offer effectively. But how is that making profit for me? Well, if, if a market maker, you in this example, makes profit if the price doesn't go too far above or too far below where it is, like you can kind of change your order so that it doesn't like, so like if I buy from you and then, and then 50 other people come from me and buy from you, all these sellers, and we fill all, and all of a sudden now you're short a ton of Bitcoin and then the price keeps going up. Like you're going to have to cover and buy all that back and lose money because otherwise you're going to be lose a lot more money, right? right? But most of the time it doesn't go that far against you. It keeps fluctuating in this narrow range. Yeah. So then all the stuff that you sold at these higher prices, it price comes down another little bit and it comes through and you buy it all back at a cheaper price. That comes back up. And you buy it, you sell it for a more extensive price and buy it back for a cheaper price. Does that make sense? Because it's, yeah, because you're looking at this like little narrow channel that it's going That's up right. down. But when it goes against you, I mean, it's very painful. I mean, I did write some algorithms and some stuff that did market making. It's very painful because a lot of times you take, because you're always, the market's always going against you. It's right. always like hitting your stuff, you're getting filled, and then it always starts moving in the direction you know, it because it, 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 if, 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 if you're selling to someone because it went up, a lot of times it's going to go up and keep going up a little bit. Yeah. It's like, oh, crap. And then it's, it's like you're always in the red and you're hoping that it comes back. But if it doesn't come back, you have to cover your losses and absorb that and then keep doing it over and over again. So in one, of the, in one article I read, they said in 2010, the, the, like, the estimation that the average high-frequency trading term at the uh, firm at that time was making around $47,000 a day. Does that sound like a, like you sound upset? No, no, not, no, no, <laughs> yeah. not upset. No, no, no. I'm just it, that, that's just kind of yeah, interesting. I mean, so but this, but this, it's all I, it's all through pennies kind of thing. It's yeah, all it's all just because because they're providing a service because they're providing liquidity to people like us who want to come and buy or sell. Like we don't have to go like 20 years ago, you'd have to go to your Merrill Lynch account and pay a few hundred dollars just to or more just to un, just to buy or sell some stock. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it took a lot of time. It was very expensive. You got terrible fills. Now it's like instantaneous. You go on your E-Trade account, log in, you get hit, you get like a penny or whatever way. It's instantaneous. Yeah. Right? And they're just essentially, high for, see, there are high frequency trading firms that do more of what we're talking about doing, which is predicting where the price is going to go. Yeah. And, and there are some that do market making. A lot of them do some combination, you know? But if you're an exchange, you want liquidity. You want a lot of market makers because people go to buy and sell where there's liquidity. Yeah. Right? If there's nobody buying or selling, like, why would I go there? I can't even buy or sell anything. Yeah. Right? So, so that's why you asked me last night, you're like, well, why, why do they charge a commission for adding in, uh, for removing liquidity and they give you a rebate for adding liquidity and what does that mean? Adding liquidity is putting a limit order in that goes in the book because in exchange, you're like, great, now we have all these buy and sell orders. People are going to come to trade here. 
So I will give you, they were going to give you a point, uh, they were going to give you 0.1% of a Bitcoin rebate. That was just, just 0.1%. 0.1%. Yeah. So they'll, they will actually, so essentially they're paying you to put orders in the market. To have liquidity. Okay. I see. Now it makes sense. But if I come, me being a buyer, I come in and trade, they're charging me 0.2% yeah. to, to remove liquidity. Okay. So that's called, that's called the um, uh, make or taker model. Now with, with for, Bitstamp, for changes. I see. But with Bitstamp, they just charge 0.5% for every transaction. For every trade. Well, so they're really expensive. On both sides. Yeah. So they're very expensive. Yeah. So, so what you want to do is you want to look at a couple of things when you decide to which one you want to trade. You might want to try in a couple of experiment. Yeah. Um, but you'll be like, okay, well, can I get book updates? Like which one has accurate data? I mean, but Bitstamp's the only one with like liquidity as far as I can see. I mean, and that only trades three and a half thousand Bitcoin a day. You, you, mean, you may not need a lot of liquidity because... You're not trading a lot of size. You're not. You're not putting fifty thousand dollars of Bitcoin in this, right? No, you ain't. In fact, you're like, hey, I don't have a lot of money. I'm happy if it makes a couple of hundred bucks. <laughs> well, that would be great. <laughs> to make it anything, it'd be great. So, you might say, like, I mean, Atlas looks like they have. I mean, according to their advertising and their, their marketing copy, it sounds like they have very that they're very fast and responsive. Well, they do the data. They do a very interesting thing, which I also don't understand, and I, I, it seems I don't understand most of this, but. Um, but by building all the stuff, you will understand it. Right. You will understand it. Right? Whereas opposed to just reading about it, you're never going to really get it. They, they, not only do they do their own kind of tra- like market exchange stuff, but they also give you access to every other market exchange. Mm-hmm. So you can determine, like they give you the order book of all the other exchanges and their exchange. And you can then, it, you can trade with other exchanges through theirs. How can that work? Because... Because it's like a pass through, I guess. Uh, no, but I mean, don't those other exchanges charge a percentage? And like, how how the hell do you know what percentage you're be, you're paying? Maybe they just add it on. Maybe maybe they. I don't know. I haven't, re- I haven't read that, but yeah, you have to check and say, do we get charged? Do they charge you, and this other exchange charge you? Or, or maybe the other exchange agreed to it for liquidity reasons. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to look into it. I mean, but it's. I mean, it really depends. I mean, it's like developer time versus. You know, because like it, it might not be that hard to write a separate trading bot or connection to each one of these exchanges, and then where you're, it's faster. It's probably it's probably faster to trade directly with Bitstamp, Bitstamp, and then right. trade yeah. on Atlas through Bitstamp through Atlas. It kind of makes sense. Get double charged for your for your yeah, uh, for but it all that also kind of makes sense because if you have an algorithm that's kind of working in one market, you don't want to saturate it. So, like in one exchange, it'd be good to do the different exchanges because. Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes you can make some money that way. You can trade off one and another. Some can trade them against each other, but that's usually hard to pull. That's arbi- the arbitrage. That's thing? an arbitrage. No, I just, I just mean like if your if your prediction thing is like buying and selling at the right time, and maybe there's not that much liquidity in one place. Let's say you get good, like you start trading in ten thousands in one go, then you've saturated that that exchange. So then, even if there's another lower volume exchange. It's good because then you can make a little bit more. Yeah, profit. yeah. Well, so like if you went, like let's say you went to Atlas, just say for an example that they had even much less liquidity than they have now, and you went to, and every time you went and bought, buy and sell, like the whole market moved. Yeah. Right? You'd be like, I can't get filled. Every time I fill, the market like moves away. They, they trade with me just this minimal amount and the whole market kind of moves away from me. 
So then you truly are manipulating. Yeah. I mean, you can manipulate the market yeah, because it's so small. It, it, you're, you're kind of using the term wrong. Manipulate is an, is an, an illegal... Okay, change the market. Moving the market. Moving the market, if right. If you're moving the market, that's usually bad for you if, if you want to... If you know, I mean, it all depends, but they trade a th- they have about a thousand Bitcoin a day in well, Atlas. The, the, the total volume, twenty four hour volume. Yeah, twenty four hour volume. What's really important is how much how much volume as is at the inside market or thereabouts at any given. Time. What does that mean? Like, how much can you trade at that bit, that at that best bid or best offer before you have to start, you know, drilling into the book to get filled the rest of the way? What? Like, if there's only like. Three dollars U.S. equivalent of three dollars worth of Bitcoin at the inside offer price, and you want to sell a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, uh, you know, then it's going to suck because you're like, I can't even, I can't even fill a hundred dollars of Bitcoin at that offer price. Like, I have to get worse and worse, and I have to pay more and more and more for it. Right? It has to go to higher and higher offer prices to fill my ridiculously small hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. Right? When? Yeah, yeah, I get you. So, you know, like. I've been thinking, you know, it's it's every second, it's every minute, it's every hour, whatever. But actually, the live feed isn't doesn't really have a time. It's just, is am I right in thinking that it's just like an analog? Continuous. It's, it's continuous. just a continuous analog thing. Yes. So so you're converting. So when I'm slurping in that information, I'm converting that continuous analog stream into milliseconds. Buckets. That, yeah. That's what you're, you're saying. Yeah. How how will I determine what what times to slice it at? Like. Um. I think if you went down to a millisecond, you'd probably be pretty fine grained. You know? Millisecond. I mean, a lot of back in the day, you know, a second was really accurate. But then, if if you see if you see significant prices price changes occurring at the sub second level, so I mean, most of the time it may not. But then you're like, oh, there's like a dozen times throughout the day where inside of a second it moved a significant amount. So then that would show you that like. If you're trying to create a simulated order book and you're and you only think you only have things tagged to a st- uh, to the one second grant, level of granularity, you could end up fooling yourselves to thinking that you could have gotten fulfilled at that level because the price had actually changed quite a bit within that second. Should I capture the entire order book, which seems to be a couple of you know between two hundred and five hundred at any one time, or should I just capture? There's there's another stream that they have that's the top twenty on each side. Um. The top twenty might be enough. I mean, the different stream. I, I'm talking about ten bucks trading yeah, yeah, yeah. here. Like, is, I'm I'm well, not looking thing. for like. No, no, no. Yeah, here's it's going to be filled. I know. No, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You just want. Yeah, I think the top twenty is probably fine. Yeah. But what you want to do, and I would encourage you to do this, the very next thing you do, the next time you want to sit down and have a little bit of the madness, is write, is spin up an EC2 instance and write a bot that all it does is subscribe to the stream, and stores this in a log file. Yeah. Start grabbing that's data. What, that's what we just said. Because, yeah. yeah. I mean, do that because what happens is, is you're, any other data that you download or whatever is not going to be accurate to test against other than that yeah. data. And it really, and you need to trade on the, on the box that you're going to be collecting on, or essentially has to be in the same data center. So you know, you, you, because if you're collecting data in Chicago and trading in New York, it's like, well, they're completely different latencies, you know, based on how they are related to the, you know, exchange. You know, it's going to take longer if it's further away. So you want to be, Trading, trades need to be executed where you're collecting it. Right. right. So you need to get an Amazon instance just next to their, yeah, their, their data center. And, and, and you're going to really want minimally a month of data to test on for intraday trading. I, ideally, you have three months, but a month you could start. 
So so start da- now. So like a, a day's worth of data is not enough. No, because that what you said. You're like I. You know what you said? You're like I made six hundred dollars. I hundred dollars. I only traded one day. I'm like, mm, okay. A, I think you probably have a bug in your code. Yeah. <laughs> and then I find that you're executing off of just trades and no market and no book. And then I mean, yeah, no, it's probably. And um, and one day, of course, it's not. It's ridiculously small. Mm-hmm. So and then once you start collecting that data. And once you have um, enough of it and you, can, and you can write a little simulator that can, sit, that can play back a day or however much time and go through it, um, then we can talk about how do you backtest correctly so that you don't continually, um, you need to have a, a, a... Why do you need a simulator? Can't, like, why do you need a simulator? To simulate your buys and sell that to, to, to when you put your algorithm through and it sends orders to this book and, and right. whether you got whether you got filled or not or your book or your or your order got stuck in the book and then got or, filled but someone else put it. Oh, because I thought what you're suggesting for a second was that you you basically capture all this data and then you create some kind of server that you hook up to like and that server plays it back in real time and you try and do your trades. No, you don't that. have to like create a separate server. It can just be a you, in, in you can just way, pass. You can just pass the log file and, yeah, and see what happens. Program. Yeah, I, I, yeah. You don't want to go through all that crap. Um, that make it. I mean, I've done stuff like that, and it's just there's way more time. And it's, plus, you want to be able to simulate a day and run your output a day in like a second, not thirty minutes. <laughs> and if it's like yeah. parsing off and you're using sockets to communicate back, it'll take forever. Um, yeah. So what you do, even though you initially store this all in a log file, you ultimately probably want to compress it down. This is for later. Is compress it down into binary so you can read through this thing entire day of book updates in like a couple seconds and not like have to parse some like 10 gigabyte text file and it takes like you know 15 minutes right yeah so but you can we can get there um and it just depends i mean i'm i was you know when i did this i um, mean i was dealing with um order book data on things like uh microsoft Google. I mean, it was just just huge. Well, so so that's the other that's the other point is that um, working with Bitcoin seems to offer an advantage versus shares because with shares you can't fractionally trade a share. You have to trade one share, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. We, we call them stocks. Okay. Stocks. Equity or stocks, shares. I don't know if that's a common England, but yeah, you okay. can share you share shares of stock. But when you trade intraday. You have to trade in round lots, which means 100 shares at a time. What? You cannot trade a single share. You can only sell less than 100 shares if you're trading like uh, less than, you're not considered. You, you have to trade 100 shares at a time. Yeah. You can't Why? go buy nine, nine shares of Google and be trading. There's a call, it's called odd lots. You can't do odd lot trading if you're doing intraday trading. Why? Like, um, uh, I think it just, uh, I don't know if it's just a bookkeeping complexity issue on the server, but you're not allowed to do that. Because we, I, we, we, this hedge fund that I, I co-founded with the guy, I remember, I remember my partner and another guy there were, were, were like, you could get, oh, because you know what it was? I think one of the things they did, they gave special consideration to odd lots because those are the small fries. People are like, yeah. I'm going to buy three shares of Apple. You know, yeah. they would go, okay, madam, here's your three shares. And you get right to the front of the queue and you get filled at this great price. Right. And it was kind of like, almost like, I wouldn't say it was public relations, but it was like, you're dealing with a really small fish. And so the SEC made people, made them, made the professional 
trading firms and the brokerages give special consideration to these odd lot traders, which are just the small fry. They don't trade very often. They don't trade very much. They don't trade more than once a day, usually. And if they do, they, they can't do it more than two days in a row or something like that. But So you've got to spend like a, a minimum of 5000 per trade, basically. Like if you're doing Microsoft, for example, which is 50 bucks, you know. Yeah. Right, which is very different to ten dollar trade. Right, right, yeah, right, right, right. I mean, but back when I was doing this, and I, I, I think it's more or less the same thing. If you're a professional trading firm and you have a relationship with a clearing firm and everything like that, they don't really like you. We would, I mean, we had fifty thousand dollars account. We would have two million dollars or more in outstanding um, portfolio and shares in our portfolio. They did not check like. You know, because like right now, if you have, you know, $10,000 in your E-Trade account, yeah. you go to buy Microsoft and you, and you or you know, let's say Microsoft says $5,000 for 100 shares and you go try and buy 300 shares, they're like, oh, you can't, you have enough of that money in your account. Right. They didn't, intraday, they didn't check us. We would just buy and sell a ton of crap. But at the end of the day, we'd get a P&L like, you lost $800. You know, we might be trading millions of dollars, but we might only up or we were usually up or down a few thousand dollars. So you can start trading intraday. You have to have 30,000 in your account in the first place. And then you're classified as a pattern day trader. Yeah. Now, once you've got 30,000 in your account, can you then trade millions of dollars of shares like you just described where they don't look at you? Uh, it depends on the exchange. I think they probably, they're probably a little less. Uh, Is it like a credit card thing where you gradually build up your credit over time? Yeah, and it, it probably really depends on your clearing firm and your arrangement with them and whether you're professional. What's, what's or not. a clearing firm? Okay, so like um, when you're a prof- so as a as a re- retail customer, which is what you and I are. Yeah. At E-Trade or whatever, Meritrade or Fidelity, wherever you have your account. You you put your 10,000 or 50,000 or whatever you put in your account and you're it you're when you buy and sell stuff E-Trade is sort of like is your broker and, and it's the one executes on your behalf and then it reconciles all the P&L and then when you make or lose money, the money gets transferred between the brokerages and it says, okay, you know, you bought it at this price, you sold it at this price, you made a loss this amount and then it updates your bank account, your account, your, so, how much money you have in your account. So right? E-Trade is trading on your behalf with who? Uh, it's going into the open market, you know, like we're talking so, about. So NASDAQ, for example. It could NASDAQ or New York, depending on where the stock is listed, it could be uh, New York or it could be NASDAQ. So each, so, so NASDAQ themselves have their own infrastructure and that's like the mothership. That's the exchange. That's the mothership. That's the, that's the, the core, the hub. That's the, and, and then, exchange. And then e, the exchange. And then E-Trade is, is trading with That's them. a broker dealer. Right. Okay. Yep. It could be trading with Goldman Sachs. It could be trading with other, you know, Merrill Lynch or Fidelity or UBS or, you know. Fresh who's the clearinghouse? The clearinghouse, our clearing firm, is like a broker for professional traders. So if you and I said, hey, we're going to start our own professional trading firm. Right. And we're going to put, you know, half a million dollars into an account. And we're going to trade in and out of these markets all day long. We don't open up an E-Trade. Okay. We go and set up an account with a clearing firm. And um, they handle all the or the P and L and you know the share transactions from a sort of an accounting legal standpoint. So, how much do you pay per trade with H high frequency trading? Then it depends. The more you trade per month, the lower the rates you go. So, what happens is is that, and then of course, the lower the rates you go, the more money you can make because the less it costs you to trade. And so, trade a strategy that might make. So, if you and I 
we're a startup trading firm and it costs us, I mean, I don't know what the rates are these days, but let's say it costs a penny a share or half a penny a share. They may be paying a tenth or a 20th of a penny. So we might go, you might be like, Jason, I found this great strategy. I backed this. And I'm like, dude, but you're like, the only problem is, is it loses money at half a cent a share. But if we could get down to a tenth a share, we'd be making money because there's massive, I could get massive volume on this. There's usually, you know, liquidity on this. And so we'd be like, how the hell do we get these lower rates? The only way we can get lower rates is if we trade a ton and then we can go back to our clearing firm and say, hey, dude, like we just traded a ton for you guys. And um, as a result, we just paid you guys a ton of commissions. If you want us to keep trading with you and not move to another clearing firm, then you got to lower our rates. Right. Understand? Yeah. Now, what some of these high frequency trading firms would do is they would, um, uh, is they would have multiple clearing firms and they would play them off one another. Because okay. like, the clearing firm might be like, oh, you're not really going to move over to, you know, you're not going to leave, you know, whatever first options and go to Spear League Kellogg or go for, you know, whatever. They're going to, but if you're like, oh, we have accounts at all three, we can move all our volume there in 30 seconds. You now they're like, oh, and, 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 you know, you make, you make $40,000 off, off us a day <laughs> from commissions or something. And so they're like, we want, a tenth of a cent a share, or we want a twenty percent. Okay. That's what they would do. They would negotiate with these clearing firms to get the lower rates. So for a startup firm, you have two options. Either one, you pay the more expensive rates, you come up with some trading strategies that can make money even though it costs more to trade, and then you keep going back and negotiating with them to get lower and lower rates because you have a lot of volume with them to make money off you. Or you go to some big trading firm that already has massive volume. They back a lot of trading groups or trading firms, and you trade through them and they say you can use our connectivity, our servers. Um, you can you can use our clearing rates, which are practically nothing because we have massive volume and negotiating power. And we're going to take thirty uh, percent of your profits. We'll give you even trading capital, and we'll take thirty or fifty percent of your profits or something. Huh. And a lot of trading firms, I know, guys, I mean, this is, and it works a lot of the times this way that. And those things, usually with those firms, those firms started out as small trading firms, and they got really more and more successful. And then they brought other trading groups in them, and they say, hey. You guys are smart guys. You know, you guys can be your own group. You can have your own trading strategy. You can have your own technology. You can use our clearing rates. You can use our technology. You know, you can use our te- the technology. We How have. do you get into one of the, that situation? Um, usually it's, it's like getting back by a VC. You come in and you say, maybe you refer- you're recommended by somebody. Say, here are these smart guys at MIT who've been trading, guys out of Goldman Sachs. They've been doing this and that. Um, and you can say things say, all right, well, what's, what's your sharp ratio, which is your risk adjusted return? What's your volume? What are you trading? What kind of trade? They, you, you kind of play this cat and mouse game where they right. want to find out kind of what you're doing, but you're not going to tell, give them up the goods. And they want to get a really good idea of like, if you got, are you guys making money? How much are you making? How kind of risk are you taking? You know, and if they like, okay, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do something. And that, that's what happens. Hmm. Okay. Interesting world, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. I'm trying, trying to think of all the other questions as they, <laughs> as they crop up. Um, yeah, so, so actually trading stock, is that, that's like not on the horizon for us anytime soon. It's certainly not in any kind of high frequency. Because, for example, Scott Trade, it's like that's seven bucks a trade, you know? Mm-hmm. Like you, that that's, uh, only can be long term, basically. At seven yeah, I mean, seven dollars a trade, depending if you were trading um, massive. Uh, you know, if you, if you could trade, could trade like 5,000 shares to $7 a share, then it's like you trade enough size that $7 is a very small percentage. Yeah. I guess. 
But I, there's probably some caveats in there on how much you can trade and what that what volume that applies to and this and that. And of course, then it really depends on like you're you're probably not getting incredibly good execution. You know, I mean, I, I can't imagine a average trading firm trading Scott right? So it kind of seems like one other thing I noticed was that um, on Bitstamp, Litecoin was you know had about I don't know three or four times more liquidity than Bitcoin. So that was kind of interesting. So it's, it kind of seems like there could be a, a progression, like it, if one got good at it and started making some profit and started filling, you know, not being able to fulfill orders, you could kind of go like Litecoin and then you could go to Bitcoin and then you could go to Forex because obviously foreign exchange, there's going to be a crap load of liquidity. And then from there, you either stay there at Forex or you could move to shares. But the, the, the thing that I really like about Bitcoin, Litecoin and Forex is you can, fra- you can trade in fractions. Mm-hmm. You know, is you're not bound to this. Like, you got to buy a hundred shares at five grand. Yeah, no, we can play. Yeah. You can. This is this is like you know playground money. I mean, this is like super tiny amount of money. Right. Yeah. So you could so you could just do different you know different strategies and have a lot of fun in in those markets. I mean, even if it was like consistently turning over a hundred bucks a day, I'd be happy. You know, that would add to quality of life. A hundred dollars a day would be. Depending on how much your capital is, it'd be doing well. I mean, making as, as a buddy of mine who is not virtual trading used to say, says it's really hard to go f- from making no money to making something. And, right. and once you're making something, it's usually easier to figure out how to turn that down and make it more profitable. But just, just to scale get, it, just because to get anything that's consistently profitable is really hard. Well, I was thinking that. I mean, if you make one percent, if you're if you're if you can make one percent. Then, as long as volume can be filled, then you can just like multiply that, right? You could just do that same thing up with twice as much money until you exhaust liquidity and you start moving the market. And, and yeah, this is a feedback loop, you know? right? Yeah. But what happens is like these trading strategies have a life cycle, um, um, just like any business has a life cycle. So, you know, we've seen businesses come around; they offer a product, and that product is really hot and cool for a while. And it lasts for a few years or whatever, and it starts to slowly, people stop caring about it, it becomes less and less profitable, right? Trading is the same way. You come up with a trading strategy, and maybe you get lucky, not lucky, but through a lot of hard work and some creative thinking and trial and error and everything else, you come up with something that works. And then you work on it a little bit more, and you figure out how to make it even more profitable, and you figure out how to extend it to some other markets, like Litecoin or Fork, whatever. And then it, and you ride that thing, you milk that thing for a while, and then it, becomes, and it starts becoming less and less profitable. There's no such thing as a universal trading strategy. You'll have trading strategies that will, they all have a life cycle. And then the trick is figuring out when it stops working, is it just statistical slow period or is it, is it, is it not working anymore? Like the market has changed. It has structurally changed. Other, there are other participants in the market have figured out are changing what they're doing because of their own success and failure and they, and whatever their changes they've made are now removing whatever opportunity is that you're capturing. Okay. I've got another question for you. So let's say, so let's say there's a hundred high frequency trading firms all over the world and they're each earning 50,000 bucks a day through their algorithms. So that's 5 million a day, about 1.5 billion a year that they're earning those firms. Where is that money coming from? Who's losing money? Um, well, it's, it's sort of like, uh, I think you'd have to look at it like this for the most part. You have to think of it as like, they're providing a service of providing liquidity and we're paying, um, rather than paying high commission costs anymore to brokers, 
you're you're you, they are earning fractions of a penny by providing markets. So we're paying. So when you go and you buy, you bought Tesla, yeah. and you paid, you know, however many thousands of dollars, you know, you essentially gave them fifty cents for the for, for the fact that they some some private traders essentially earn fifty cents from you maybe. Uh, do the fact that they were providing uh, but how did they earn it from me they earned it from me because they bought it from someone else earlier at a lower price right so like let's say that let's say that you sold it I mean you bought it at a certain price that price is a little bit lower than what the real price might be like a, you know a, a half a cent or a penny or something like that and then later they sold it to somebody else who bought it maybe for half a penny more I see. You know, so it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, of, like I say, for of, of the things in the world that are worth getting upset about, like this is not one of them. It, you know, it, it's like it's really confusing because it really blurs the line between like what's actually going on. Yeah, I mean, really, but it's 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 good because anytime you or I want to go buy Tesla, we can instantaneously, and we don't have to pay. It's not like this fifty cent bid offer spread because it used to be these big spreads because they were, they were traded in like. Eighths of a of a of a of a of a dollar, yeah, sixteenth. So you would pay, you know, um, twelve cents or something just to execute. In addition to like you know one hundred fifty two hundred dollars to execute a trade for the broker, it was really expensive to buy and sell stuff. But now, because of technology and because of you know these automated market makers, average traders. Us retail traders, we can get in and out and trade something anytime we want for almost nothing. So one of the one of the things that kept on coming up in my research on HFT, I'm going to call it now HFT, mm-hmm. uh, was in 2010 there was a flash crash uh, where it, you know in one day the stock market just kind of crashed and then it it recovered itself within five minutes. And there's a book written about it by Michael Lewis called Flash Boys. Yeah, Michael Lewis is ridiculous on this subject that's right. the one i told you that i was going to get called on to debate mark cuban about. okay yeah so tell me so what was the i mean i didn't read his book i just watched about three of his interviews and yeah. it's just it just um well here's the thing first of all let's talk about that so it crashed for five minutes and it corrected itself yeah uh, why do you care about that no no i mean i'm just saying like why if you even if even if tesla crashed for five minutes would you even notice no, and I can I can understand why it would no difference. I can understand why it would crash for five minutes and then correct itself as well because you've got your algorithms like it's just it's just a balance, just but balancing. The market crashes all the time, whether they're traders or not. And if you look back at you look at stocks from the uh, late eighteen hundreds, there are crashes like that, intraday crashes and bubbles and bursting, just like there are now. Yeah, it's all the time. Like if I showed you stock charts, futures charts from last week. To ten years ago, to fifty years ago, and some were intraday charts. Intra- and I didn't label what was what. You would not be able to determine. Well, you could argue that it brings stability to the market. I think it. I mean, because in that, in that case, like, who's to say that there wouldn't have been a crash anyway? I mean, the reason why it went down was because someone sold a massive amount of something, mm-hmm. and so a lot of algorithms saw that and got took that as a trigger to move down. But because that was just an independent thing, then they kind of rebalanced themselves and went back up. Yeah. So to me, that seems like stability rather than yeah. I, I mean, I, I it would be hard for me to go through all of that right now because I haven't like read up on what he was saying. Right. But um, you know the the only thing, the only thing that I think there there are these things they call dark pools. Like the, imagine that. Yeah, dark pools. Yeah. I mean that's that's something different, and I I'm, I I that seems sounds a little sketchy to me. Anytime there's not an open, transparent 
uh, marketplace, you're screwed. So a dog pool is like a, a collective of people putting in crap loads of money to buy, to do no, stuff. No, no, no. A dark pool is like you can buy and sell your stuff, but like, like only a, a limited number of us can go and buy and sell this, but not everybody can. And I don't know, the, 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 the price reporting is very limited. So what will happen is like, let's Oh, I say, thought it was more like a kind of a fencing scenario where there was like some indiscriminate shell. And then behind that, there was maybe 20 traders who were colluding to collude through that shell so they could get large volumes into the market. That's what well, I'm kind of like, that. I mean, that's sort of the same thing, but I mean, but basically what happens is that, so let's, let's change the example. Like you're, you trade for, um, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs and you want to, you want to, um, buy a million shares of Apple. You're buying a huge amount of stuff. Okay. Um, well, what will happen is as soon as you start buying a lot of volume, it's going to keep pushing the market up. I see. You're going to yeah. pay more. And, and so you're, so you're going to have to buy it. If you're, okay, so if you're buying, I can't remember. Okay, so let's say you're buying, you're going to have to buy it for more and more and more. The market's going to be like, holy crap, it's going up. So people aren't going to want to sell that, right? If you were selling there before, you're like, oh my God, look at all this volume that's going up. You're like, I'm not selling here. It's yeah. going up, right? I'm going to buy, in fact, right? So the Goldman trader is like, oh my God, I'm trying to buy this million shares for my client, but I can't because the market moves away, moving away from me. So people can see that, you know, be, they, they can detect that I'm trying to buy a lot, which means they're looking in the future going, the Apple is worth more than we think it is because there's a big buyer out there. But they want to get over on the market and buy at the current price. Yeah. They want you to know what they know, which is that you're, you have a ton of money that's buying it more than it's currently valued. And so they get, they get upset about it, so they try and hide and obfuscate what they're doing, and then they get mad at the high-frequency trading firms. But how can they do that? How, I mean, like, volume's volume. How can you, you can't hide well, volume. Well, like, they would do, like, there are some firms that specialize in um, what they call VWAP trading, volume-weighted average price. So let's say they would go, there, you would, you would, I think, auto de- a trade desk or something was one of those firms where you would just, you would say, I want, buy a million the goldman trader would say i want to buy five a million shares of apple today but i'm only willing to pay uh, i will pay you uh at the volume weighted average price so whatever the average price by volume was for the entire day for apple you don't have to sit there just playing this little cat and mouse game with the market yeah and then um the trade desk guys were like a kind of high freezer trading firms like we can think we can buy that throughout the day very surreptitiously so that it doesn't push the market around and we think we can beat that VWAP. So we'll, we'll, uh, you'll pay us the VWAP. We think we can buy it for a little bit less and we'll keep the difference. And so there could be a lot of that going on. Yeah, well, you know, because like, big firms, Fidelity or these big, you know, um, you know, these big mutual funds or whatever have massive amounts of stock that they're trying to move around and they'll give it to other firms sometime to, and, and they'll say, look, we're going to take all the risk off. We know we're gonna, we can pay the volume weighted average price for the day. Um, maybe first plus some fee or something, and then they'll take it. This other firm will go that specializes in, in moving, moving that volume. That sounds like, yeah. yeah, it sounds like a lot of liquidity could be made up that way through kind of that, that kind of, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like um, all that stuff is, all the stuff that's exchange traded is pretty vanilla. And it's, it's the, you know, when people start talking about the banking stuff that was bad, it was really all the, um, um, over-the-counter credit default swap BS that there really wasn't sufficient um, um, collateral capital behind it and they were doing all this kind of stuff. But the stuff that's just traded like stocks and future stuff is pretty, 
Okay. I, okay. I've got another question for you. So quants as they're called or algorithmic traders. Well, okay. Quants are, quants tend to be people with PhDs in oh, physics, okay. math, financial engineering, computer science, machine learning that go and work or hedge funds or these big banks like Goldman. And they do, some of them do analysis on like the investment banking stuff you know, or these structured deals or this over-the-counter default, credit default swaps and things. And okay. some of them do quantitative models on, you know, exchange trade stuff like we're talking about. Okay, well, uh, what I mean is algorithmic traders then. Okay, okay. So, the, so the guys who write the algorithms to do the trading, assuming that there's, that there's some guys who just do, it's just them, they come up with algorithms and they work for firms or hedge funds or whatever and create these algorithms that make profit. Why do they stay at the firm why don't they just go away and build their own thing? Um, so what'll happen is, so let's say, let's say you get a job at some big hedge fund or some big bank that has, that has proprietary trading. Because these banks like Goldman Sachs or whatever, they have proprietary trading groups as well. What does and that mean? They have people doing building models and trading. Right, yeah. They don't just execute, um, they don't just take companies public or execute orders on behalf of other people. They trade their own based on their own opinions, okay? Um, or a hedge fund. You go and they hire you, you come out of uh, some top school with a PhD and whatever, and you spend a few, you know, few years working your way up, and they're like, okay, you are now kind of running your own book or your own group, even. And you're coming up with these models based on the stuff that you've learned how to do. And, you know, you, you could be making millions of dollars a year. You don't have to worry about raising capital, you don't have to worry about negotiating with clearing firms, getting technology, getting service, all that kind of stuff. You're like, I can just sit here. They'll pay me, you know, maybe it's a quarter million dollars. Maybe but that's the guy in charge of the group, not the guy writing the algorithms, or is it the same thing? A lot of times it can be sort of the same guy. It just depends. I mean, but I mean, you maybe you have maybe you have general ideas about trading algorithm, and you hire a couple guys to help flesh those out and do some of the a lot of the testing and stuff and you guys brainstorm on it. So those so those guys, why don't those guys? That's like there must be some some like well, programmer well, who's they, sitting there and he's like writing these algorithms. They're making they're doing really well and he's like, "Hold on a minute. I could, I'm just earning well, my Well, a lot of them would depend on having a lot of capital. The algorithms. Yeah, so the algorithms in the first place you need, need capital. capital. Um not only for like these the well, unless you're doing using forex because then that's what I'm saying. You can do fact- fractional trading with Forex, so. Yeah, uh, you know, but in order to make enough money to replace the salary, because these guys still get paid a lot of money. Even the guys who are these quant even the, are still making a few hundred thousand dollars a year okay. or more. So, so the entry level is like that, a couple of hundred thousand. Probably, I mean, it depends. But I- anyone who knows anything sufficiently useful and is competent is making a lot of money. And, um, and then and for them to go out and trade on their own in order to make enough profit off those things to replace their guaranteed salary, guaranteed salary. So there's risk. Plus a bonus. Yeah. You've got to have a chance to make a lot more than that. And the only reason you make a lot more than that is like, you better be damn sure you're, you can do it all by yourself. Yeah. You're not just writing up somebody else's ideas. You come with your own algorithms. And because so when these set of algorithms that you're kind of vaguely aware of that you think you can make a play on and change a little bit, you better hope that they... You'll work, and they better not take their algorithms because if anyone finds out that you stole their algorithms, you're going to go to jail. We've seen that go in the paper. Like some gold, a guy at a Goldman, some programmer was walked away with some proprietary algorithms and stuff. And how would they know? Uh, how could they prove they, it? Because he was going to go start um, a trading, uh, enjoying this other trading group. 
that came out. Okay, so he wasn't just doing it on his own, like because I was I was wondering like if anyone could track that down by looking at the trades. No, no, not you can't. That way. You can't because it's not the trades aren't attributed to people. You no, know, it's like usually yeah. it's usually through other you know personal people relationships talking about what they're doing and word gets back. But here's the thing, um, or they just and, and then they knew the guy was going to be in the industry, and I think they tracked you know him copying stuff off the servers and things like that. I see. Yeah, but. Um, the the other thing is you got to raise a lot of money and then there's clearing rates we just talked about yeah, right? yeah okay so you're some unknown programmer at some bank or hedge fund and you're gonna like go start walking around and try and find some big trading group whatever that's gonna back you and give you access to clearing rates and capital i mean that's hard it's hard to do and you got to convince them that you actually know enough but yet you haven't stolen their algorithms from this other place because they don't want any part of that you know legal problem but then of course they're like but you can invent some other ones i mean it's, a lot of people are just like you know what i just get my salary and big bonus and i don't take any risk and screw it okay so let's talk a little bit more about the algorithms that you created during your time there what kind of volumes were they trading a day oh well, we were small fry i mean it was just like you know i, I mean i did in a couple different instances but I, the one that was did that we did the most it was uh, me and a friend of mine at the time we were backed by these um, tr- uh, this small trading group and we had like $50,000 in a trading account and we would do pairs trading. Essentially we would trade one stock versus other. So you have to find two stocks that have a relationship. One tends to, when one moves up, the other one tends to follow and vice versa. Right. Have a leader laggard. And whenever their price difference or the price ratio would get outside a band of where it usually was, we get two standard deviations or something like that. We would buy or sell it depending if it got a below or above. And, and then and when it came back inside, we would buy and so we would close it off. What did you call your algorithm? Big Chuck? Or we, something like no, that? No, we didn't have a name for the algorithm. <laughs> but you're, so, you're always it. about names like Black Ops and all this kind of stuff. Like, Oh, well, I called the trading system the ATM. You called it the, the trading machine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ATM, yeah. So, so the ATM, but you know, the ATM lived for many, many, many years. I mean, uh, um, this friend of mine I did it with, you know, after, after we... We were not able to make successfully make money because our, our clearing rates were too high. We were kind of breaking even or just barely profitable. Okay, we so. had crappy, crappy rates, and and then my partner at the time he just got frustrated with the situation and didn't want to do it anymore. So did you think that when did you you when you went into that did you think okay I'm I'm minted I'm gonna make so much fucking money? I don't follow the Justin trap. <laughs> It's a million dollar idea. I was like, well, you know, I always kind of had modest, like, you know, this would be really cool if we could get this making like, you know, a thousand dollars a day. But I mean, you know, that would be really cool. And then if we got a thousand dollars a day, maybe we could ramp it up to like five or 10 grand a day. But knowing what you know now, why don't you do it in Forex or or Bitcoin where the rates are lower and. Um, well, I mean, because for one right now I have a situation with Uber that's right. worth a lot to me. So, yeah. um, no, I just mean like as a little side project. Um, well, you have to have trading capital to do it. I mean, unless you're doing like, like we talked about, like Bitcoin, a uh, hundred bucks gets you started. Yeah, yeah. It. I mean, I had thought about it at different times. It had occurred to me, maybe we could yeah. trade Bitcoin. That's why I'm recommending it to you if you have the madness. Like, right. You know, it'd be kind of, I can do it for you sort of like vicariously. But all that's going to happen is the same thing that happened with Phil. Like, so you, Phil started doing weight loss and getting fit and then you got really competitive and then you probably going to get better than him now i'm going to start trading bitcoin and you're going to be like you know what i want to do this and then you're going to start doing I'm it. Just like this, <laughs> I, be, I, it, it, it and then you're going to make it into some big competition <laughs> well you right. know 
See, and then you're going to write better. Like, oh, no, I'm, not. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm very curious. It's just like an experiment to see if you coming into this, being someone who's good at programming and just kind of building stuff, but really doesn't have much knowledge about this stuff or math. Like no math. And math is sort of inconsequential. Okay. Right. I mean, if you know basics, it's, I, the, the stuff that you need, I'll just say, read this, look this up on Wikipedia and you'll figure it out. You're okay. Right. It's just and a for loop with a couple of ends. It's not a big deal. Um, but um, to see if you, if you could figure something out, it makes it be neat. Hmm. You know? I mean, like, uh, look, I mean, if, if you, here, here's, here's sort of like the, 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 the a couple cases. In one case, you get there, and you kind of come up with something and you kind of mess around and you find it's really hard and you get tired of it and then it's gone. And okay, so we talked about it on a few pod shoe shows and it's kind of fun. And, and meanwhile, you learned a lot about some stuff that you didn't know anything about. Well, I think at the very minimum, it would create some kind of business opportunity. So I was saying this to you before, like even right now, I'm just thinking that whole piece of like back testing and collecting data, it seems like that would be an interest, just interesting to people. Like it's, that seems like a, a valuable service that you could sell right there. A lot of people try that. Like that's a lot of crop programmers do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they, a lot of workers go down this road that they don't really know how to make profit, so they try and sell the technology behind it. Yeah. Um sell picks and shovels. They try. Don't it's mind not for always gold. the it's not always work. I mean sometimes it does. Um <clears throat> But if you were uh if you were like if you really were doing well, I'd be like, Okay, maybe I should try it. I don't know that I have, <laughs> but I mean right now I just don't have the time to do it. Right. So it's fun for me to just kinda help you because I've because if you did this all by yourself you would make so many dumb mistakes that you wouldn't have the enthusiasm to stay with it and but it's kind of like when you go to the DMV if you don't make a, an appointment you get to the end of the line but if you make an appointment you go to the front window there's nobody in line right right so I'm like making an appointment with you every but every single step so like <laughs> okay what a wasted a month and a half in this now it's like one hour what a waste a month and a half of this one you know so it's like you're getting these super fast uh, super high learning rate, so you don't do these things that it, a lot of times these people who try and get out of the trade or the mistakes they make, and it just takes them forever to like, oh yeah, I needed, I needed tick data, couldn't use one minute bar data. Oh, I needed book data. Oh, I needed to collect it on the machine I'm actually trading with because they're lazy. Oh, well, I not need- just me. Everyone, I guess everyone. everyone who's listening to the show is you're giving that same yeah, advice. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I know you're you're worried about the phone. Like, oh, tell people about the algorithm. I don't want them to, you know, like. The- I'm not. I'm not telling my my algorithms. No, that's between me and my my console. Yeah. Look, if you come up with something that works, that'll be fantastic. I'll be a little bit surprised, <laughs> but I'll that'll be great, right? Um, but you know, sure, people want to go out and build a, a Bitcoin trading bot or whatever. I mean, this it wouldn't affect you at all. Mm. You know, even if you gave them an idea of what you were doing, it probably says. The reality is, like, remember that one that, that article I, I, I sent you was that about that one dude who uh, who made he said he made five hundred thousand dollars doing automated trading. Yeah, and and then the whole the whole um, the whole comment section of Hacker News was calling bullshit on it. Yeah, everybody thought it was luck, even though he was doing like two thousand trades a day. Like statistically, it was not luck. You know, he he figured out something that worked for a while, but people just don't believe it. So even if I said this, I do it. You'd people be like, ah, you know, it's it's weird yeah okay so that because it just seems to but it's not easy i mean even even if i did something um that was successful it would be on the standing on the shoulders of 20 years of being a developer so well i'll be staying on that and you'd be standing on my shoulders of giving you a shit ton of advice and insight like you there's no way you do this on your own right you just there's so much that you don't know and there's so much and you don't know anybody in the industry to help you 
Could well, all the, even the stuff we've spoken about today, just just the basic stuff of like what an order book is. I mean, just looking at that is just uh, kind of annoying, and just looking at it without having someone to help you know talk it through and describe it. And so, yeah. All right, let's talk about some other stuff. All what right. We really went on. What time is it? It's. Uh, How are we done this. We. I don't think we have too much longer because um, we, what, what we're gonna head for like an hour, an hour and a half show. Today. What time is it? It's what uh, oh, the time right now. Two oh eight. Um, well, let's just cover a couple things. I just wanted to kind of get a couple updates on some on some stuff. Oh. So I um, one thing I thought was kind of uh, kind of neat. I um, I, I I got Colby using a a, a a program called Code Avengers. Remember we interviewed Michael Mike Walmsley a couple yeah. weeks ago. So he finished the first JavaScript course mm-hmm. a couple days ago, which is really cool. It, and it has like a lot of the bot stuff, and it was kind of like. It was at a decent level, like loops with conditionals inside the loops and stuff. So did it take him beyond what we got to in Catalyst? Um, no, not completely, but, um, but doing it on his own was pretty good. But kind of got, did it lodge it in his brain? I think so. He gets yeah. it. Yeah, okay. And, and I'm not helping him. I'm not sitting behind him kind of okay. reminding him to do this. That's the key, yeah. That was really cool. Um, so now he's going to start the second JavaScript course. But I'm also having him do this program called Code Combat. Mm. And... Uh, it's like a, um, we didn't talk about this last show, did we? No, no. Okay. So it's like a, a, an adventure game, but instead of controlling your little guy walking around with your keys or joystick and pick up this item, attack this monster, go in this door, you write, your code does that. Nice. And um, each and each level is like a different challenge. His ogres are attacking. It's kind of, um, I can't remember with a perspective, it's kind of like the... Um, not first person perspective. It's more kind of, you know, kind of, I don't know what you call it, like uh, StarCraft. Okay. And it's, he loves it. Wow. I mean, he's like, amazingly, his teacher is letting him do it in school. Oh, cool. Which I was sort of thinking, like, well, I, I thought, I mean, I know uh, his teacher, Mr. Rojas, would allow him to do, uh, to use Code Avengers because that's like Code Academy kind of thing. And uh, we'd already, I already talked about that. What but class? His, he's in one class. He's in fifth grade. He only has one teacher all day. Oh. When you're in fifth grade, you don't go. When you're 10 years old, you don't have like, you don't go from class to class to class. Oh, okay. I you one yeah, all right. day long. Unless you might have like. So, how, so what did the other kids say when Colby looks like he's playing a game? Um, I, well, yeah. I, I asked him. I said, what? I said, he doesn't really say much. I mean, so everybody has their own Chromebook. Yeah. And so they're doing what they have to do. And I think Colby is, he's like, I say he's like three levels, which is like probably a half hour, 20 minutes worth of work to being done with all of the K through eight math. Mm. That oh, he's okay. in. And, you know, most kids are like in fifth or fifth grade math, somewhere in fifth grade. So it's like, Colby's done. Like, what's he going to do? Huh. You know, he had have a couple kids doing scratch, but Colby already knows how to program. And so I think Mr. Rojas is like, well, he wants to program. He doesn't want to drag and drop stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't want to do that. And so that's pretty cool. But the problem is we're on this one level and we cannot figure out how to get past it. We, we, I was trying cause he got stuck <laughs> and I was going, we, I tried every combination. I'm like, I don't know what the heck's going on. So I actually went on that, the discussion board and I was like, well, let's just paste your code. Cause we, we tried everything. I, I don't know if there's a bug in it or there's something, but every command that we have available and everything that logically makes sense doesn't work. We can't kill all the orgers over. We have to. It's called 
peasant protect and like we have to protect our peasant from the ogres we have to kill them all before <laughs> and like we always dies and we can't protect them i don't understand what the hell the problem is so but i said colby this is part of the thing is you go on google after a while if you can't figure stuff out you go look and see if somebody's post posted about it posted about it and see if they give us a hint if not we'll ask a question like on stack overflow and see if we can someone can give us a hint so there's that code warriors dot com is it code combat code combat dot code combat dot com. com okay great i I, I recommend it. I mean, I like both of them for different reasons. I kind of have Colby work on both. Which does Colby prefer? Code Combat. Yeah. Oh, he much rather. He likes it a lot. Yeah. And um, and I encourage. I each day I'm like Colby, try and do. Why don't you do twenty five levels of Code Combat? That usually takes him like an hour. Five levels, really? How many levels does, does it have? Oh, I don't know. I mean, each level is like a step. It's like an individual challenge. It's like five challenges. I mean, I'm just like saying, like, if you're going to come home after school, and you don't have practice or anything to do, and you're just sitting the computer for hours. Like, do a half hour. Does that cost? No, at this point, it's a white combinator company. Hmm. Really well done. I mean, I really, I really like it. I mean, I guess that, but I like Code Avengers too for different reasons. I think they're both worth doing. But um, it's uh, pretty cool. So anyway, um, nice. Next, um, oh, so um, let's do an Operation Superhero update. Um, so I, let's see. So the last thing I said, oh, so one, one thing that really sucked is I strained a ligament and my grandma talked about. Yeah. Spoke about that last show. Yeah. And so I initially was thinking that I was going to try and work around it or work through it or something. Mm -hmm. And then I went and talked, I was talking to my buddy, Pete Kim, um, who's the, the Almighty Hive. I've done, you know, I've, I've talked about him before on the show. I did some work for him at one point, and um, it, and he was looking at me when I we were at breakfast. And I was I was up in San Francisco last week, and we were having um, and we were and I was telling him about this, and he was just like, "Don't do it, you know, don't do it. Don't try and work through it. You're just gonna hurt yourself, right? Just take a break. Yes, because you know he he's he's lived away for a long time, and he's just like, you're just you're being dumb, you know. He's like, you're a rational guy, but you're you're not being rational about this. And so I was like, all right, fine. So I was like, you know what? Maybe he's right. Maybe Pete's right. Maybe I just have to just suck it up. I'm going to lose a lot that I gained. I mean, I gained eight inches on my vertical. And I'm going to lose a good chunk of that if I have to sit out for six or eight weeks or whatever. But then I went in uh, my um, the chiropractor who does the soft tissue stuff. And we, you know, uh, this was on Friday or yeah, two days ago. And, and I told him, I said, I was thinking about just doing nothing and he's like no you can do easily he, he, he basically said no you can do you know do this do that you can do these things up until the pain point if it, it don't do it if it hurts but do everything up into the pain point so i'm back on that okay which is good news so i'm trying to figure out how i can make progress or at least not lose a lot of ground yeah while he while heals <laughs> so anyway it's, it's really frustrating because you know it's like you know how did you get a setback work really hard you make a lot of progress and then it's just like you get a setback or you just can't make progress. And, and the key is, how do I keep that from not coming completely off the path? And then on the whole weight loss thing, I feel you know, like this. I went up to San Francisco and I had been weighing around 186 and change, which is near my low. And then I w went up there and I was like, you know, oh, it started off because I had like, my plane got flight got delayed, and I'm stuck in the concourse. The only thing to eat there was was Burger King. So I was like, you know, what, screw it. I'm just gonna have like a 
double whopper or something, you know, starving. Uh-oh. I was starving to death. I had already gone through a couple protein bars. And so then I was like, you know what? It's the what the hell effect. Like I can yeah, see where I'm it's like, going. Not, and I'm not going to worry about it. So I ended up having some big meals up there. I came back and on a Friday night, 2 a.m. After I had my flight got delayed. So I get at 2 a.m. And I get on, I still get on the scale, much away. I weighed 198 pounds. Holy shit. Well, 198.2 to be precise. I was like, what? How do I gain over 12 pounds in three days? But you, that you're weighing yourself at the end of the day then. But uh, that was at 2 in the morning. I hadn't eaten anything like four hours. I mean, yeah, I was a little heavy yeah, more, but, but still. Yeah. Okay. I, at most, I lose three pounds overnight. Yeah, okay. So 195. Wow. Well, so how did that make you feel? It made me feel, made me freak out. So the next day I hit the gym and did like 750 calories on the elliptical and lift the weights. I was like, all right, full force. So I've been, I've been hitting hard this week. And I told Sandy, I'm like, I'm going back severe on the diet. Yeah. It's like dinner is chicken and broccoli kind of stuff. Oh, gosh. So I got back to about 188. Mm-hmm. Which um, is only two away from where you were, yeah? Yeah, about two. Um, so we'll see. I, I probably gained, I probably did gain a little. I probably gained like maybe a pound and a half. Right. And I think that I had, you know, so we'll see. But I'm going into a body composition test on Tuesday, so we'll find out where I'm at. But I mean, it was funny. I was like, I saw that. And I'm just like, no way. This is not, this is not happening. I'm like, <laughs> alarm bells went off and I went to emergency mode. Oh my God. You know, because it's like, you know. Yeah, it was just, it was, that would just, that would have just been the worst. <laughs> to gain all that weight back. I mean, your body, and the reality is. So quickly. The reality is that when you eat a lot, you eat a lot of carbohydrates, which I did. I had like Chinese food and got Indian food and all those kind of things that had like a lot of carbohydrates and um, and that sugar. I had you know a couple of cokes and stuff was up there. That especially the last day. And when you have sugar and salt, if you had Chinese, so you had the salt which makes you retain water. You had the sugar which which basically makes you retain water. So yeah, because the glucose yeah. is four times the amount of water. Yeah, some crazy. Amount. So yeah, I mean all that stuff did is just put a ton of water, but I had assumed that like, because in my cheat days in the past, I noticed that I would gain like five pounds if I went crazy on a cheat day and would right. take like two or three days to get back to scratch. But I thought that was probably a ceiling to that, like five pound water ceiling. <laughs> I didn't realize I could get like 13 pounds. I mean, yeah. That was sort of. Well, it was more than one cheat day. It was like five pounds times by every cheat. I had a couple big meals, but it wasn't like a cheat day where I would go out and have ice cream and donuts and just go to town. Like, I wasn't like, it wasn't like that feeling you have after Thanksgiving dinner and you just like have to lie down for a while. You eat yeah. too much. Anyway, oh, yeah. it's just, um, well, I don't know. you're back on days? track now. So, well done. Yeah, back on track, more or less. So, um, probably a pound or two heavy, probably 188. So, we'll, we'll see. What else I want to talk about? Oh, um, so uh, I went up to, you know, like I said, I went to San Francisco and I went to all the new Code Club, MV Code Club. Oh, nice, nice. So, yeah, I went there after uh, work on, um, I guess it was Wednesday. Hanging out with Doug. Your 75000 yeah. investment. Yeah, so um, we now have, we have two locations. The second location now has like, that's going on 70 kids. Great. To open in October. So that's really good. Mm. And I guess you're dealing with the holidays, which are rough. Um, and, uh but yeah, it's growing. It was fun to go uh, sit in there. I'll, I'll show you a couple pictures of the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's cute. Um, it's kind of funny, you know, it's kind of funny. So I'm sitting in there. We go stop by and see it. And Chaz is, um, he's like one of the guys who sort of runs these locations. And we sat in there and he was just kind of chatting with Doug about like, you know, 
this do instructor, that do instructor, or, you know, when we're going to, we're going to be open on the weekend or we're going to open up a new, you know, just kind of the, this general chat or discussion about what's going on. It was just so funny just sitting on the couch, listening to him, like, like, you know, I own part of this thing. Like, it's just, it was weird. It was, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was, um, it was cool. It was, nice it was fun to see it going. And, uh, I was just like, I'm like the thumbs up guy. I'm like, all right, good job. <laughs> Keep it up. Uh, you know, I'm like, I'm like, I gotta be kind of, I gotta come across as kind of funny to the people who work up there. Like I'm this friend of Doug's who put money in. I walk up there and like the Southern California sandals and, you know, just kind of this laid back, just like, all <laughs> yeah, right guys, good job. <laughs> like who is this guy? You know? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but um, so that's, ex- that's exciting. Um, let's see, what else? Let's see. Oh, so I was up there at, uh, yeah, at Uber, and let's see, what else are you talking about Uber? Um, all I can say is, there were, oh, there was a countdown, there was a big countdown on like the number of employees. So there were, I walked through and said we were 47 employees short of 2,000. Like, mm-hmm. and to go, employees to go, to hires to go to reach 2,000 was like 47, was like a ticker. Now, is that, does that include cab drivers? Oh yeah, that, that's yeah, that's They're just, not employees. Those are, yeah, that, that's yeah, exactly. These so, are just employees. There is, six, is employee number two thousand going to get like a five hundred dollar bonus or something? <laughs> I don't know. There's six hundred people just at the headquarters. Yeah, I mean it is ridiculous. I was something was just like as far as the eye could see were like uh, cinema displays and and uh, MacBook Pros and stand up desks. It was just it was funny. It was just it's just huge. What are they all doing? Just it's just one app. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on. A lot of infrastructure, <laughs> a lot of things going on. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just sort of, it was funny. I walked in on Friday. They were demoing my um, mobile mobile app I built to manage the real-time stuff, real-time systems. And uh, I missed the first part. So I walked in the second and Damus was like, oh, hey, this is Jason. He's like the great, great grandfather of, uh, you know, the dispatch system, you know, the real-time. And so this is 57. 57 guys <laughs> in this room are all working on a real-time system. Stuff. And it was just you to start off. Wow. 57. And uh, I was just, it was just kind of amazing. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's the reason we use Node. And I'm thinking like, you can either, that's either credit or blame, depending on how you want to look at it. Because some people are, there is, like, there's a split. There's some people who are like, you know, we should use this or that. And I said, you know, one thing I was, I was saying, you know, I said, look, the thing is about Node is when I started, we had 30 cars in San Francisco. We had one city and we had 30 cars on the road at most. Now we have somewhere like at any given time, we have something north of 50,000 cars and a trip at any one time. Mm. 50,000 trips. So we've been, I went from like maybe, 30 cars, we had 20 trips, they have 50,000. So anytime something goes through like multiple orders of magnitude. You have to do different, like different something. Everything yeah. changes many yeah. times. It's just, you can't, whatever you're building them doesn't make any sense, you know? And so that's why it's a, it's a constant process of reinvention. You know, that's why like when they started out the very first version before me, which was the PHP script, yeah. It was great for like five, ten cards. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden it starts to fall apart. You get 20 cards, 30 cards, starts to get problematic. And then, you know, Node.js solution. But you've managed to scale Node up a lot with your with the way you've done the segmented server system and the grid 
Oh yeah, well um, yeah, the the huge. I mean, you know, I don't know why that isn't like just un, infinitely scalable because if you can break every section, every grid server into a quadrant, why? Oh, it is. It is. Why, I mean, it, Node is very good uh, for a lot of things. I mean, it it you, there's nothing saying you can't do it. It just might not be as efficient as certain things. So I think one thing they're doing is, and I don't really know the details about it, but um, they're segmenting out into like much more homogenous services that do certain things and just focus on doing that one thing really well. And I was talking to Jeremy. Um, he he was he was like one of the first seven or five, six or seven guys on on, on real time. He's been there about two years now. So he's kind of an old guard. Right, right. <laughs> and he's he said, yeah, this weekend, the past weekend, he went and rewrote. Remember what service it was a node that that was take like sixteen servers down to like one writing writing it and go. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, one thing, one thing I think Amos was telling me about, like, I guess something like like something that Node was handling, some screw up happened and it forwarded all to Python, and all of the huge number of Python servers just melted underneath the heat that Node handles easily. Hmm. So, you know, there's just gradations of like what certain types of platforms can handle. Yeah. You know, I mean, they each have their strengths and whatever, but, um, you know, I, I think Go is closer to C type of speed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's a combination combination of reasons, you know, with, but, um, you know, you, what they may end up doing is peeling off more and more parts of what's handled by Node and it's written in C or written in Go or something like that. Just because if you could, if you can have like a, if it's like use one server instead of 16, well, these servers are expensive. You know, we have like, I guess something, I heard something like, we're going to have within a couple months, like 1,700 servers or something like that. I, did you do, I've really started, I mean, I'm just in love with infrastructure at the moment, especially programming infrastructure and automating infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, so Salt is, has been amazing. And, but we just, we just built this new system. Do, do you mind me? Talking oh. like, yeah, we just built this new system where you, you, when you program PHP, do you show notices? Do I what? Do you show notices or, or do you only show errors? Oh, uh, well, when I'm in debugging mode, I do. I show, I show everything. Yeah, so uh, I, I do that as well, right? So I, when I program PHP, I show notices so that when it's in deployment, I feel yeah, fairly, like I'm variables I'm fairly confident. Yeah, so I make sure that you know everything's like tight, tight right? So I kind of... This was an opportunity to extend that to our entire system. So what we've what we've done is we, with Salt, um, you can kind of layer stuff on top of each other. You can it's sort of like functional programming. So we have this one Salt state called base machine. So every machine is basically Ubuntu fourteen oh four and has a bunch of stuff. And one of the things that we've put on there is this um, monitoring system. So basically, it's monitoring the machine for various different things like you know, what, what load is it using? How many inodes is it using? But also it's monitoring our code base. So if there's any aspects of our code base on the machine, it's monitoring the logs and it's seeing if there's a 500 error or it's seeing, you know, it, that's in, in PHP or in Nginx or in Node or whatever. And all of those errors are sent to us in Slack. Mm. So, but sent to us in such a way that it actually, it, it's a, like a full notification. So it's really annoying when the errors come up. Like, yeah, well, we, you know, we did that in the, with HipChat. You're right. Okay. Like all these, I don't know if they're still doing that because I don't log in as much to that anymore because because that was stuff would annoy the crap. But in the in the dispatch room, it was yeah. anytime there were like deployments or problems, it would all get posted notifications into dispatch. So it is it's proven really excellent. Like so, 
you know, it doesn't matter what what system it is, what server it is, because this is on, you know, like a hundred servers or whatever, we will get that notification and we'll just be, okay, let's just fix it. So we're just kind of going along and fixing stuff as we're going along and the code base is just becoming much tighter as a result. Yeah. So yeah. That's cool. So you nice. have a hundred servers at different schools. Do you have two per school? Two? Well, no, it's this there's, it's there's um it, it depends on um I mean, because we also have a large kind of cloud infrastructure. Okay. So the whole the whole, you know, that includes school servers and cloud infrastructure. You know, so we have like, I don't know, 10, 10 workers uh, processing a rabbit queue. We have 10 workers, like as in doing jobs, you know, sure. things like when you upload a photo or something. Then there's another 10 machines processing kind of messages going backwards and forwards between things. So it's, it's that plus the school servers. Yeah. So we, we actually have in the field right now about um, 55 servers mm -hmm. in the field. But it's going very nicely. Oh. Is it pretty clean? Is, do you, is your uh, is it pretty stable now? Oh, very nice. Another another another. Even with Salt, so here's here's an interesting thing. Salt has this thing where you have a Salt master, and it's connected by zero MQ to all of its kind of slaves, as it were. But they're called minions, right? Minions. <laughs> so, but but the interesting thing is behind uh, behind the school kind of firewalls it just doesn't work zero mq just doesn't work very well there's there's some there's some deep reasons why that is so we've had to kind of build our own system to mimic that so we've got this we've got this system where we uh if i want to kind of deploy a command on all of those servers I'll, I'll run the command and then it will basically ssh into all of those different servers and deploy that command and it it's like working in a very rock solid way so there's just lots of stuff going on um, from an infrastructural point of view that I'm really happy with right now. You've learned a lot, a lot with this project, Ken. Yeah, oh, it's great. It's great. Really nice. It yeah. was such a different experience. Well, but the funny thing is, is it just started with an HTML, a server, you know, an HTML. I mean, that's really where it started with very minimal PHP. <laughs> yeah, that's where it all starts. That's where it always starts, right? <laughs> right, yeah. It's like, it's like you building your blog out of HTML. I mean, it just started really, really simple. That's um, the same with Uber. I mean, it was just a PHP script called CallFlow. I just sent Matt a list of PHP all... script. All call for. All right. So um, one thing you can do with Salt is you can list all of the key, all of the machines, uh, because they're all kind of identified by keys. So like we have, you know, Live API, Rabbit Worker One, Rabbit Worker Ten. So I just you, there's this command Salt uh, Salt Key Space Minus L, which just lists them all out. So I did that listing, and there's you know like my hundred plus servers. I sent that that to Matt. When we started, remember, we were just HTML with one with one server. Now look what we got. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. a lot. How many, how many guys are there now working on the technology? Right now, three. Including you? Yeah. Not a lot. No. Pretty, uh, that's pretty, yeah, it's pretty mm -hmm. impressive. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Let's see, one other, let's see, I think it was one other thing. We should probably... Um, yeah, wrap it up. There's one other thing I think so. I wanted to say. What was it? Um, oh, I was interviewed on a podcast, Get Up and... Code. Oh, you you got <laughs> yeah, did that. Well, there you go. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I mean, they, basically, they were, uh, but they originally sent an email wanting to interview me, right? No, they said they wanted to talk. We want. Well, oh, I, okay. I, he said he wanted to talk to me, but then he was also he yeah. said he, the other. The, see, a guy, a guy who's a listener to our show wanted to Doug Coleman wanted to talk to him about all the or the Operation Superhero stuff, and then mm -hmm. he said, "Oh, I also interested in talking to Justin about the." Uh, um, walking desk stuff or whatever else I do. All right. So he might but I seem to remember you replying to him saying, 
Justin doesn't know shit about exercise. Oh yeah, he doesn't. So, I mean, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're on, you're being interviewed on the show. I mean, that's fine by said, me. I'm just said, saying. He said, "Oh, he's like, he's like, oh, yeah." But he's like, "Yeah, I think I want to talk to Justin on the show." Which I'm like, if you want to interview, I should probably do it separately, and you can talk about right. stuff he's doing. Um, but uh, doing us together would be kind of, I don't know, kind of an awkward thing. Just right. like, every time you do dual interviews, it kind of sucks. And um, and then then I got emails like, "Hey, when can you do it?" So wh- how do we get to that? A website? Uh, it's just called Get Up and Code. I don't know. Get Up and Code. Just Google Get Up and Code. Yeah. And you'll see Jason on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you talk about? Well, obviously, oh, well, superhero project superhero. Yeah, but yeah, but stuff we talked about on the show already. And okay. um, so two quick things I want to mention. One, um, you know, the math team. I tried this uh, website called IXL, which allows you to do drills. You know. Um, yeah. So based on different skills. And it was kind of interesting how it didn't work because I've discovered that kids that age really have a hard time correcting themselves by written solutions hmm. at 10, 11. I mean, I think I might change like 13, 14 maybe. Uh, but for some reason, they just like, you know, the reason I wanted to use it is like, well, rather than me making up homework, sending it home, if you forget how to do it, you don't know if you've gotten it wrong unless we have to spend a bunch of time in class going over the homework. Your parents don't remember how to do it. If you do it, then you're kind of stuck. Well, and most of the parents don't remember how to do algebra, so they're stuck. So, but if we sign it on a computer program, log on the website, go here, bunch of problems on factoring. You know, and you go and you do it, and if like, you get it wrong, it says here's a solution. Well, the problem is, if you make a stupid mistake, you still get it wrong, so you lose points, which drives kids crazy. I mean, and kids that age just make stupid mistakes because they're just young. Yeah. Dumb mistakes. Uh, even more than adults, and adults make plenty of dumb mistakes. But the other thing was, they just like the, the solutions written out, but they just can't learn from solutions at that age very often. Mm-hmm. It's weird. What age group do you guys work with? Uh, just well, basically uh, K K twelve, but I think, but not really K twelve. K six through twelve, basically. More six through twelve. Yeah, six through twelve is our main. So six six grade up. So yeah. you're talking. Love 12 more on up, right? So yeah. I think maybe, yes, I'm thinking, I think we're a year too young for doing that. So I end up having to give up on that, which is a big frustration because it means I have to do more. more All right. Myself. Yeah. But um, the last thing I want to talk about real quick, and then we'll grab, grab some lunch, um, was, uh, you know, I had done that God's Tweets mobile app for my, my buddy, uh, Mark, the yep. other Christian. And um, the, uh, the disk failed, or there was a major, there was a, Data corruption thing. I logged in and basically had to run like F, F, F disk checker. F check, yeah. And uh, and it just screwed up. It screwed up some tables and it screwed up just some of the um, source files. And so I had to go through a lot of debugging to figure out what it had screwed up. Did you did you run fixed table? MySQL fixed. Yeah, I went through all that. Okay. Right, I couldn't fix it. Yeah, I tried and it just couldn't. And but because it was so new, I mean, we weren't really running this like a production level. There was no backup system or whatever. So we lost everything. And I was like, well, good lesson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to have, you know, you need to have backup. You need to have real time. So you, you're you going to help me um, set up a, I talked to Mark and he, he really liked the idea of what you had suggested, which was setting up a couple of EC2 instances or the master-slave configuration of MySQL. Yeah. And then you have this other program you said that runs off the slave that does an hourly backup? Or yeah, like yeah. Um, I think it's auto MySQL backup. I can't remember the name of it right now. Can you just send me a link and put it Yeah, in? sure. Well, I'll do it with you. I mean, we'll, we'll I'll screen share with you. But, uh, yeah, so that'll be kind of interesting. But it's like even just the process of building a test system, we got hacked and we got a disk failure problem. 
huh. once. I mean, it's like, you know, stuff. I mean, he was like, ah, you know, he's like upset. And I was like, look, I mean, it's Murphy's Law, man. If it can't happen, it w- will happen almost. If something can go wrong, they will. And yeah, we got a little unlucky that where our system hacked and we uh, had a disk problem. Huh. But that's why you have backup stuff. And luckily, at this point, there were so few people using it. was just mostly like friends and family. It was like a half dozen or eight or nine. But it's on, it's on the App Store, right? Making it Godspeed. So it's down right now. So I got to, oh. that's one of the things I have to do today. Yeah, okay. Get it back up in its base state. But um, yeah, so we got to get that. Uh, what day is it today? Sat- Saturday. Sunday. Sunday. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can help you today. Yeah. All right, let's get out of here. I'm starving to Sure. All right. All right. That's a wrap. We're out.